Father, we thank you for your goodness, God, for your mercy and your grace. God, we thank you that you didn't stay in the grave, but you rose again. God, that we could have hope, God, that we have a living hope that conquered the grave, that conquered sin, and that is you, Jesus. Thank you for being our hope, God. Fixate our eyes upon you this morning, God. Open our hearts, God. Open our ears, God. Let all distractions uh, be rid from us that we might hear from your word. God, because your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, piercing to the soul and to the spirit, God. And so let your word do its work in our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Cole Force. I serve on staff here at Cross as a student minister. Uh, and so I'm excited to, to be with you today as we get to jump into God's Word. Uh, and before we kind of get too far in, I want y'all to just see that like the next gen is taking over, okay? Leandra was here already. Now I'm here, the next gen. Like we're just coming for everybody. Uh, and so just know that like if, if, you, if, you, if you don't like something, you know, crumble up your worship guide and throw it. I won't be offended. Um, Actually, it's okay. I don't care. But uh, man, we, we're excited uh, to be able to just gather together, to have kids in the room, to have students in the room. Uh, man, we love it when we can worship together as a collective body with all the parents and the kids, uh, grandparents and everyone. So we're so thankful uh, for each and every one of you. And so as Leandra mentioned just a little bit ago, uh, your giving was a big part of us going to camp tomorrow morning. As we check in at 5.30 a.m. and then we make the trek to go to Lynchburg, Virginia. And so, uh, man, I am just hoping that the Lord is going to do a huge work in the lives of our students, uh, in the lives of our team. And so uh, before we go too far, I just want to take a moment and just pause and pray uh, for camp before we dive in. So if you'll join me in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you so much uh, for each and every person that you have going to camp. Every student, God, every leader. Uh, God, I thank you that you have provided an opportunity for us to distance ourselves from all distractions, God. Um, Lord, that students would say that, that sports, they can wait, God, that uh, a trip, another trip, it can wait, God, but they want to meet with you. God, I pray that throughout this week, uh, Lord, that you would transform hearts, God, that you would make people new, God, that you would take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh, God, that you would transform lives, God, as students hear the gospel, Lord, that they would be so enamored with your love for them, God, that they would follow you all the days of their life. God, do a work that only you can do this weekend. God, let us see your work, God, that we could boast in your glory. So, Lord, we love you and we depend on you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, apart from that, so now it is my pleasure and opportunity to really kick off a new sermon series for us this summer uh, entitled Dwell. And so, as we begin to look at dwell, today we're going to be looking at uh, dwelling in God's work. And so, we're going to land in John chapter 15. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible and turn there, uh, John chapter 15 is where we're going to land at. And so, as we begin to talk about this word dwell, a lot of us probably already have an idea of what, what does dwell mean. We could say that it means to remain in, to be steadfast in, to be connected to. I think another word that we can probably use, uh, we'll, we'll sing this song here uh, at the end of our service, but as I uh, really listened to the words, as Grayson told me we were going to be singing it this week, uh, a, a big part of that song is he talks about dependence. And so when we are dwelling in God, when we are dwelling in God's work and everything else that we're gonna talk about through John chapter 15, what we have to come to understand is that when we dwell, it's not just to abide, but it is to depend upon. And so today we're gonna to talk about dwelling in God's work, depending on God's work. 
not our own, but God's himself. And so today our central truth for us this morning is gonna be that disciples of Christ will bear fruit and the process is painful. Disciples of Christ will bear fruit and the process is painful. And we're gonna see this in two ways as we begin to look at John chapter 15, verses one through three. We'll give you a little roadmap. We're gonna talk about how Jesus' work saves us, but not only does it save us, but Jesus' work sanctifies us. And so let's begin. Let's look down at John chapter 15 uh, and we will start reading in verse one. Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, God. I pray that you would um, use your word to transform our lives this morning. God, let us see that your work is what we depend on, not our own. God, let us see the goodness of your grace and your mercy this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we begin uh, in this passage, we see three people identify. Jesus begins to identify three different people. He says, I am, meaning Jesus himself, but not just I am as in, hey, this is who I am. I'm Jesus here. He's saying I am in the sense of he is deity. He is God. He is God in the flesh. The I am statements, this is the seventh that we see in the book of John. And this I am is no different. Jesus is saying I am deity, but not only does he go in to say that, he goes in to say that he is the true vine. So one person's identified. Jesus is the true vine. The second person that we see identified is the father. And the father is identified as the vine dresser or the gardener, okay? The third person that we see or really the people that we see is the branches. And the branches can be people, the disciples in that immediate context, those who are gathered around, but we can kind of think about it in terms of us, okay? The people. People are the branches, And so, but what we must come to realize is that Jesus begins this this topic talking about himself. And so we cannot move away from that. We must dig into that. So Jesus says that he is the true vine. Notice that he doesn't say he is a vine. He doesn't say that he is even just the vine. He says he is the true vine. What this means is that there are other vines that we tend to in our lives to try and cling on to get life, sustenance, have acceptance, have approval to even have our greatest joy in life. But we must come to understand is that Jesus is the only place that we can find that. And so it's very easy for us, however, to jump in and to really live in our culture and see, man, I have these other things that I wanna gravitate towards in order to find my life, in order to find my satisfaction, in order to find my greatest joy. And so there's just a couple of things I wanna highlight in our culture within our own lives that we can very easily see how we might be those people who really cling to the false vine. Okay, the first one would be this. In, in, our, in our culture, money. Think about money, how money can be the vine that I try to go get my life from. Okay, money, when, when we gravitate towards money, what we say is I need to have the right job to be able to get the right amount of money to be able to buy the right thing that I want. So I have the job, I have the money, now I can buy a fill in the blank. Now, if that is my vine, I get my fill in the blank only to want the next best thing. Therefore, I need another new job. I need a race. I need to keep climbing the ladder, climbing the ladder, climbing the ladder, climbing the ladder, only to be still left at a place in which I still long for more. I still long for the next thing because that vine is a false vine. It will not satisfy us, the vine of money. Think about another one, marriage, okay? Marriage is one, a thing that many of us aspire to have. 
And we began to believe these lies. I know I did uh, about, what, five or six years ago, four years since we've been married. But I, I believed this lie that whenever I would enter into marriage, that my life would just all of a sudden be super easy. Right? That all of my problems would go away, that I would no longer deal with any of the issues and sins that I had past dealt with. I, I, we began to ha- build up this fairy tale like a Disney movie that we're just all going to live happily ever after and we're never going to have any problems. We begin to believe that lie only then to enter a covenant marriage and realize that within the first fight that marriage did not expose our sin, but rather, I mean, it did not, oh man, what's the word I had? Um, it did not um, relinquish our sin, make it go away, but rather it exposed it. We, we thought what was gonna fulfill us, it did not do so. And we realized that we're a lot more messed up than we thought we were. That is the, that's a false vine of marriage. While marriage is a good thing and a thing given by God, it cannot be ultimate because it will still lead us longing because that's when we get to the point where we're like, man, this is hard. Should I not just get out now? Marriage cannot be the true vine. And last, the last one I want to highlight for just a moment is that really just the sexual revolution. So I'm not going to dive too deep into that. We're in family worship this week. Uh, but basically with, with what's happened in our culture, we've said, I want to be with whoever I want to be with. It doesn't matter what that looks like. It doesn't matter uh, how often. I can have a hedonistic mindset about whatever I enjoy and I will dive in and dive in and dive in. That's why we live in a culture that whenever uh, we have a, a TV screen or a computer screen or a phone screen, we tend to go back and go back and go back and go back for it. And what we've done is we've created a culture that now we live in this world where human trafficking is the, the biggest thing. It's, the, it's at this most largest moment in history. And the sad thing is that's largely endued even from the church. We think we can find our value even in things like sex or relationships and they will ultimately leave us wanting because they are not the true vine they are false vines and so we must come to the realization that Jesus is the true vine he's the only place where we can find true joy because these things are not ultimate Jesus is ultimate so imagine for a second that you are a star runner okay I myself am not a star runner okay you ask any of the men who go to f3 they will tell you that I finish last every time that's when I go, okay? But at the end of the day, imagine that you are a star runner. You are phenomenal. And so you're training for a marathon, and you train for that marathon, and not only do you run that marathon, but you win the marathon. And so you expect that gold medal. The thing that you pushed for, the thing that you wanted to achieve, and you get to the podium, and they place the, the like, lanyard on you, the medal on you, only for you to look down and realize that it, all it is is a piece of plastic that you can snap in half. That's what going after a false vine is like. Thinking that you're going to get the real thing, but you get a counterfeit. Because Jesus is the only true vine. Jesus is the place where we must find our satisfaction. We must find our worth. We must find everything comes from Jesus. Our joy, everything. Everything that we aspire to have can only be ultimately found in Jesus. And that's why our first point for us this morning is that Jesus' work saves us. Jesus' work saves us because he is the true vine. So we, we hear this point, we hear, we hear Jesus saves us. And being, if you've grown up in church, you lived in the Bible Belt, or maybe you've just grown up around some good people that say, hey, yeah, Jesus saves, whatever. And you can nod your head to that. Yeah, we're good. Jesus did it. But what we have to begin to ask the question is, 
do I really believe this? Is my life marked by Jesus? Does my life scream to other people that I love Jesus because of what he has done for me? Because people will know where your faith lies, where our faith lies, by the way that we live. It's not by our lip service. It's by our actions and what we do with our lives. And so the reality is, is that many of us have grown up in this Bible Belt culture, grown up in the church, and really we talked about it during our Bad Religion series two series ago, right? We just finished the Psalms. We did Bad Religion right before that. Uh, we, got, we, we understood when what Taylor was kind of breaking down was that we can have this misconception that somehow I can do enough good, I can do the right things, and I can be obedient enough that God will let me into heaven. If I just go to church enough, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just pray enough, then that will be enough. Or maybe I would then even go past that and say, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I don't do those sins. Therefore, I'm okay. How could a good God, a good and loving God send me to hell? And the easy answer is because we deserve it. The reality is, is that none of us are good. That's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 3 that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? All means all. Each and every person. Past, present, and future people. Okay? All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But we fail to, to look back at what's right after that in verse 24. He says, And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not our work. It is Jesus' work that saves us. And we have to come to a realization that we are all messed up. It doesn't matter how good we are or we think that we are. That's why James, the half-brother of Jesus, who did not even believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection, in chapter 2 of James, what well, he can say, this is what he writes in James chapter 2, for whoever keeps the whole law, okay, so you're good, right, but fails at just one point is guilty of all of it. In that context, he's talking about elevating people above others. He's talking about the heart issues, the things that then play out in our lives. It's not just actions. We tend to think sin is just a bunch of action. No, it happens right here in our heart. It's from our heart that everything else pours out. And so we must come to a place where we realize that we have true need. We have a need for Jesus. We have a need for what is truly ultimate, and that is God and his gospel. Because if Jesus is the one that saves, then it's his work. And so we ask the question, what is Jesus' work? Jesus' work is that he would step down out of heaven, come enter into his creation. So he didn't just create it and then throw it away and say, you can do your own thing. But rather he enters into his creation and lives a perfect life free from sin, like us in every way except for the reality of sin. And then despite his goodness, despite his perfection, what he would do is that he would be beaten. He would be beaten to the point where even his own family could not recognize him is what the Psalms say. But not only would he then be beaten, but he would carry a cross and then would be nailed to a cross in order for his blood to be poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. But not only would he die on a cross to have our sins forgiven, but he would raise back to new life. That we might have life in him abundantly. Y'all, this is where true life, this is where true joy is found in the gospel, in Jesus. Because in our sin, we have nothing to bring to the table. In our sin, we can never do good, enough good to outweigh the wrong that we have and the wrong that we have done. 
Jesus must be who we cling to. We must have genuine trust and a genuine faith in him because Jesus would die in our place and without his death in our place, y'all, we cannot, we cannot experience God's mercy and his grace. If Jesus doesn't die, there is no mercy and grace for us. And so we must dwell in Jesus' finished work in the gospel, but not only does Jesus' work save us, Jesus' work also sanctifies us. That's point number two for us this morning, is that Jesus' work sanctifies us. Let's look back down at the text at John chapter 15, and let's read those three verses yet again. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse three, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So now we must go back and remember. Jesus is talking about three people. Jesus is the true vine. We just talked about that. Jesus saves, okay? The father is the vine dresser, i.e. the gardener, okay? Think about a gardener, how he takes care of his plants and his vineyard and all that stuff. Three, the branches are us. And so we look, begin to, to see that Jesus is the true vine. He's the only place that I can find salvation. He's the only place, place that I can find true joy and satisfaction is in him. Now, as we know that and we believe that Jesus is the true vine, now we look to see, well, what is the work of the Father? Because it is through Jesus' work that now the Father is going to do a special work within us. He's going to do a work within believers and the non-believer alike. And so let's take each one as Jesus lays them out. He says that the Father, for those branches that do not bear fruit are taken away. Later in this passage, later in this chapter, as you'll see in the weeks to come, we will see that not only does the Father take them away, but he cuts them off and throws them into the fire. What we must come to realize is that a branch that does not bear fruit is a dead branch. There is no life in that branch. What that means is that we have, if you, if you are a dead branch, meaning what Jesus is referring to here, you have not trusted in the gospel. You have not trusted in the fact that Jesus has laid down his life on your behalf, that you might have life in him. Life not just in the afterlife, but in the life here present. Because Jesus says that to have eternal life is that they might know the Father now. And so when we talk about these branches, these dead branches that are going to be taken away and thrown into the fire, let rest assured Jesus is not saying this in order for us to be fearful of the next life in order that we would somehow call out to God now, right? Jesus isn't doing a fire and brimstone. Hell is real. The fire is real. Trust in me so you don't go there. Jesus did not die for us to have fire insurance. That is not the purpose of his death and his resurrection. But rather what Jesus is exhibiting here is he's talking about the branches that are cut off or taken away. All he's doing is laying out the reality what is true for each of us without faith in Christ. The reality is true. He's not trying to scare us. He's just simply pointing out, this is your life if you are not in me. You will be eternally separated from the Father. So those are the branches that do not bear fruit. But what about the branches that do bear fruit? What about those who have trusted in Jesus that are connected to the vine? Jesus says that the Father prunes them that they might bear more fruit. Prunes them. This is where we go back to our central truth is that disciples of Christ, they will bear fruit, but it will be a painful journey. Because pruning isn't a fun process. Pruning is not easy. It isn't something that we necessarily enjoy even. 
And so now we must ask the question is, if we are being pruned because we bear fruit, because we trust in Christ, what does it mean to bear fruit? I think we all can can jokingly say, obviously, I'm not sprouting an apple and not sprouting an orange, okay? We all know that we're not bearing fruit like that, okay? So bearing fruit, what does that mean? Bearing fruit means that we become more like Christ. Bearing fruit is Christ-likeness. We would be conformed into the image of the Son. This is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, right after he talks about to put away all of the sins of the flesh and the body. This is what Jesus says, or what Paul says about uh, the fruit of the Spirit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that it is a singular verb, a singular noun. It's not fruits, but fruit. Okay? It is the fruit, the Christ-likeness that we experience. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, followers of Christ will bear fruit. But believe me, it is not the do it good, good old boy, let me pull up my bootstraps and do the right thing. It's, it's not that. It's not just conjure up some good in yourself because if that's the case, then like, why did Jesus die in the beginning? Like, why did he even do that? Because if he said, hey, I'm gonna die for you, but now you gotta figure it all out by by yourself, like, what's the whole point here? Because Jesus's work is what is actually going to be what saves us, but also what sanctifies us. Jesus tells us to look back at John chapter 15 as we see that the Father prunes that we might bear fruit. And so with the idea, with the knowledge of what fruit is, let's think about what is pruning. What does it mean for the Father to prune us? What does it mean for our lives to be changed? This is what Kent Hughes says pruning is. This is how he defines pruning. He says, pruning is the painful but necessary removal of negative things in the life of the believer so that they and other branches can bear fruit. Let me say that again. Pruning is the painful but necessary removal of negative things in the life of the believer so that they and other branches might bear fruit. See, this is good news because this means that God is actively working in our lives. If we are being pruned, that means God is working in us that we might bear more fruit, that we would look more like Christ, that as things come up in our lives, that we'd be able to look to Jesus. The point of pruning is for us to be fixated back our eyes on Jesus, to have our eyes focused in on him, that we might be dependent upon him. And what's crazy is that the Lord decides that he wants to use circumstances many times in our lives in order to prune us. There's awesome opportunities that God has to prune us in our lives. They are plentiful in nature. Things that are are difficult for us to really even swallow at times. Think about there's there's a few different ways. We'll we'll really encompass a lot of different things, but maybe a relationship is on the rocks. Maybe there's strife with your coworkers at work. People are gossiping about you, or maybe you're gossiping about other people. Uh, Maybe your finances are crushing you because of a poor decision, or maybe it's just simply stress for the future. That's that's rattling off about four things that probably uh, I would bet that 99% of us in the room have experienced some form of all four. And so what we must begin to realize is that if these relationships in work and our relationships in life are going to really exemplify Christ, then y'all, we must understand that love doesn't just go out from us. Love comes down to us and then out from us. We exhibit, we exhibit love to other people because we have experienced the love vertically. So like there, there's fruit there, so love there, right? In those relationships. But now think about stress. 
thinking about stress for the next thing of life. Y'all, it's very real. I've experienced this. I experienced this uh, uh, just about a year and two months ago now. As me and my wife, we decided, hey, God's calling us, leading us to be for leading us to a new, a new chapter, a new location, all in the midst of COVID. Who wants to move in COVID? Everybody raise your hand, right? Like nobody. Like it is a stressful thing. Even knowing that God was bringing us here, there were still nights of tears, still days of pain, still moments of questioning. The stress is there. The fear is there. What we must come to realize is that unless I place all of my life in God's hands, I will continually stress and stress and stress and stress and live in constant fear of what is next. And so we must come to a place, even in those circumstances where pruning has taken place through God using circumstances, he's continually pointing us back to himself. In my stress, I just need to lay it at his feet. In my relationships with others, I need to ask the question, am I actually being loving or am I just saying I'm being loving because I just don't want to deal with the fact that I'm not that loving? God uses circumstances like that in our lives to prune us. But let's make it just a little bit more practical, a little bit more personal, okay? We all have people in our life that we love, we cherish, we confide in. We care so much about them. So much so that if they were to ever be gone, we would probably not know what to do. So imagine that the Lord calls someone out of your life, whether through death or maybe it's even just through the moving of locations. Your immediate location is here. Maybe they move them somewhere across the world, across the nation, and they are no longer in your immediate context. What if it's not God just moving them for the sake? Obviously, he's going to move them for his glory. Let's be real. That's what God does. He does everything for his glory. But what if the point of them moving out of your life, what if the point of them going to be with him or or moving on from this life is for the purpose for us to see that our dependence was in the wrong place, that our dependence was placed in the wrong person, that if my whole life is completely rid and falling apart, that maybe I have personally placed my faith in someone rather than in Jesus. That is a painful truth. That sometimes we just put all of our eggs in the wrong basket. And when that basket is gone, now what? We're left with nothing. Even the people that we love and we cherish, God will so easily move away from us, take them away from our lives for us to see that we have made an idol out of people instead of having him in the rightful place of worship. Or maybe it's even like this. We talked about finances earlier with jobs and such. What if the, imagine that you lose your job. Some of you have probably experienced this throughout COVID. Now what? Where do I get my money to be able to provide for my family? Where do I have the money to pay rent? Where is it coming from? What if you losing your job was an act of God showing you that you have placed your identity, your, your thought process for provision in yourself rather than in him? Because he is the provider. He is. He's done it. I've seen it. You guys gave over $10,000 to send students to camp. No excuse financially. Like the Lord is the provider. Maybe him taking you or moving you out of a job, maybe for the point for us, for you to see that it is him and whom we must trust in to be our provision. And these are hard things to talk about. 
losing a loved one, losing a job. But the reality of it is, is that God is using each and every part of our lives to point us back to him. The question is, are we looking for it? Are we looking? Are we looking to see his goodness in the midst of the pain? Because every amount of pain has a purpose. And I know that we can stand up here and we can say that, but the reality is it is just true that there is pain and there's purpose to every amount of pain because the purpose of our pain and pruning is for us to look more like Christ, for us to fixate our eyes back on Jesus. Because at the end of the day, everything else will leave us stranded. So God is constantly having to point us back to himself. And so we see that in circumstances, but I think what's beautiful here is that amidst these circumstances, we sometimes go through seasons of life where we feel like it's like one rock after the other. It's like we're climbing the rock wall and it's like, I go to reach, that one's gone. Go to reach, that one's gone. Oh, I go to take my step, the one that I was standing on is gone. And now I'm falling. And I'm asking the, God, the question to God, when will it stop? When will all this pruning, when will all this hardship, when will all this pain stop? And what happens is, is that we fall and we hit rock bottom. And, and what we kind of tend to say as a culture is that we hit rock bottom, things are supposed to change, Right? The reality is that when we hit rock bottom, we must recognize that we don't just hit any rock, we hit the cornerstone. Because the cornerstone is either the stumbling block or it is the firm foundation. Jesus is either your stumbling block or your firm foundation. I pray that we would be the people that we would say, just like David in 2 Samuel chapter 22, that we would say, the Lord is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my steady ground. That whenever I hit rock bottom, I have nowhere else to turn but to look to Jesus. That's what pruning looks like. Pruning looks like I have nothing else, Jesus. It can only be you. Whether it's the circumstance or whether it is now, as we're going to begin to talk about, whether it's just through the circumstances, God is working in our hearts. Okay? We've been kind of alluding to that this whole time. But now we begin to talk about how God works in our hearts because God isn't just using circumstances. His, His Holy Spirit for the believer, for those who are being pruned, is convicting us of sin. Okay? So when we talk about conviction, it's not just the, the kind of, I roll my eyes, yeah, mom caught me with my hand in the cookie jar. Because when we get caught with our hand in the cookie jar, we're sorry we got caught. We ain't sorry we went for the cookie. And what we have to come to realize is that when we experience conviction, true conviction, it's when we are willing to sit in in the judgment seat and say, okay, I stand before the righteous judge and yes, I messed up. I did that. I deserve what I have coming to me. But in conviction, what that should lead us to is not just a place of shame and guilt. It should lead us to a place where we say, but I have a savior. But I have a Jesus who has come and he has taken care of it all. He has paid for it. And in that, I will repent. I will turn away. I will about face and I will look at Jesus and I will look at my sin no more. The Holy Spirit does work in us through circumstances, but also just throughout all of life. We must come to this realization that if we live a comfortable life as a Christian, and I'm not talking about financial comfort, I'm talking about comfort in sin. We have to ask the question, am I actually walking with Jesus in this current moment? Am I actually walking with Jesus? Because if I'm comfortable in my sin, then something's not adding up here. Because the Holy Spirit's gonna do work in my life. 
Trust me, if you ask him to do work in your life, he will do it. And so as we begin to, to really just talk about and think about, man, the Lord is convicting me. If he's truly convicting me, if I see my sin and I turn to Jesus, in the turning to Jesus, in the repentance, there's pruning. Because in the realization of conviction, that's where we realize, man, I don't know about y'all, but when I realize that I'm wrong, there's a little bit of pain involved because I'm a prideful dude sometimes. Pruning is painful because it heaps up sin and sometimes it's through hard life circumstances. But the good thing that we can rest in is that God is faithful. That he's doing it for the purpose, for the purpose of us bearing more fruit. Because in sin being cut out of our lives, as God prunes us, what's happening is, is now more Christ-likeness can well up. More beautiful fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And it all looks like Jesus. That's the point of pruning. Not that God is trying to smite you because you did something wrong, but because he wants you to see his goodness and his love for you. So Jesus saves us and he sanctifies us. And this is a beautiful thing for us to rest in. And I think if we can have one sense of assurance as we begin to think about pruning, I think we can look at the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul we put as a hero of the faith, and is so true, he is a hero of the faith. If we were to look at 2 Corinthians, we would see that he writes about a thorn in the flesh. And with that thorn in the flesh, man, he pleads to God to take it away three times. And, and God says, no, because in your weakness, I am made strong. I show off my power in your weakness. And, but yet we see Paul within this context, what he says is that that thorn was given to me so that I might not be conceited. So that I might not have pride well up in me because God has gifted me. That's what Paul, Paul's laying it out there. God is pruning him. Even in the sense of having a thorn in the flesh, God is pruning him to say, it's all Jesus, it's not me, Paul. And so we can have comfort because God is working. And so now we must begin to ask the question, what about me? What does this mean for my life? If pruning is painful, how can I have joy in the midst of pruning? How can I have joy in the midst of all the sorrow and the pain that I exhibit that I might do, as Paul writes, that I would have joy, or as James writes, that I would have joy amidst of all the trials when they come? Because they are going to come. Well, I have joy. How can I have joy amidst my pain, amidst the pruning? How can I have joy? And so there's four things which would make us be able to have joy in the midst of pruning. And the first is that we would remember the gospel. That we would remember the gospel. At the point we have pain in our lives, but that pain does not compare to the pain in which Jesus took. That Jesus would be beaten, that he would be mocked, he would be spat upon, that he would be nailed to a cross, y'all. The pain that we experience is so temporal. It's so just, I mean, it happens in a moment, but guess what? We forget about it a couple minutes later, usually. We remember the gospel. We remember that Jesus' life was laid out on the cross in our place. We remember that we have a suffering Savior who is victorious over sin in the grave. That is how we can have joy. The second way that we can have joy in the midst of pruning is that we must remember that God is with us. God is with you. We have this promise from Jesus himself in the Great Commission that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. 
And so if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in the gospel, the Holy Spirit has now indwelt you. He is constantly with you, always with you, walking through every piece of life with you. God has not forsaken you. He has not left you. He is there with you in your pain and all the hardship saying, just look to me, child. Just look to me. See my love for you. See how I don't just spin you out and then leave you and bring you to me and then just walk away. But rather I I save you and I'll walk with you. The third thing we can remember is that God is for our good. God is for your good. A lot of times in our lives, what we tend to do is we tend to think that if I don't get what I want, then it wasn't good. If God doesn't give me what I ask for, then he's definitely not a good God to me. But what we must remember is that God gives us exactly what we need. Not what we think we need, but what we need. And what we need is more and more and more of him. He is for your good because in giving him you more of himself, he has given you everything you could ever need. And the last thing that we must remember in order to have joy is that God is actively completing his work in you. This is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter one. He says that he has a confidence that God will bring to completion the work that he is doing at the day of Christ Jesus. If you are experiencing pruning, which all of us should be, count it as joy because God is doing a work in you that he will complete. He will complete. We have been declared whole in Christ and now we will be made whole in Christ at the day that we meet our Lord. So with that in mind, let us dwell. Let us depend upon God's work. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. God, I thank you that You don't just save us, God. You don't just do a work on the cross and then leave us to go our own way and say, now you figure it out. But God, that you are actively at work in our lives, God, that you care so much about us that you would not leave us where you found us. But God, that you desire to make us more like your son, that we would exhibit Christ's likeness to our community, God, for people to see who you are. God, us bearing fruit isn't for our glory, it's for your glory. It is for people to see a good God amidst all the tragedy that we experience in life. God, help us to remember your gospel. And that from your gospel, y'all, Lord, we can just rest. We can dwell. We can depend on you because you do the work. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.